Some years ago, Ray and I had the wonderful opportunity to visit Saint-Emilion in the Bordeaux region of France. Saint-Emilion is a small town famous for its underground cathedral, its caves, and most importantly, its vineyards. As you can see, it's a beautiful place and the local people are fiercely proud of their winemaking traditions. I have always enjoyed learning about different wines. So while we were in Saint-Emilion, we decided to take a class in winemaking. For a traditional French winemaker, they told us that success is largely dependent on two things, the terroir and the rootstock. The terroir is the soil that the vine is planted in. French winemakers are passionate about their terroir. They believe that the best wines come from the best soil, which is of course, their soil. For a vine, the best soil to grow in is not necessarily the richest and deepest soil. In fact, the winemakers reckon that the more challenging the natural environment is, the stronger and more resilient the vines become. The best fruit comes from the vines that have withstood and overcome the most challenging conditions. In Bordeaux, frequent droughts force the vines to push their roots down deeper into the soil, creating stronger and more resilient rootstock in their search for nourishment. The rootstock is the core part of the vine. This includes the root system and the central trunk that you can see in the photograph. Most of the rootstock lives underground in the terroir. Winemakers keep very close track of the history of their rootstock. Good rootstock lasts for many years and stock that is close to 100 years old is not uncommon. In order to extend and reproduce fruitful vines, winemakers can't just leave the vines to grow. Left alone, wild vines just spread and produce lots of foliage, but little fruit. These vines can't be used for anything at this point. They're basically weeds, fit only for burning. Successful reproduction of fruitful vines is achieved through a process known as grafting. The winemaker chooses branches or cuttings from other vines and grafts them into the trunk of an existing fruitful rootstock. The branch is sealed into the vine through what is called a graft union. As you might be able to tell from the photograph, this forms a strong and permanent bond that enables the branch to take full advantage of the existing root system, allowing for much more rapid fruitfulness. The branch becomes an integral part of the new vine into which it has been grafted. Just in case you're wondering whether you've accidentally tuned into the YouTube wine channel, don't worry, you haven't. This is the New Frontiers Church weekly message series. We are in a series of messages from John 15 about Jesus and the true vine. Jesus's words in John 15 are part of his final conversation with his disciples following the Passover meal they have just shared together and before his arrest later that night. In the last of seven I am sayings that John records in his gospel, Jesus used a metaphor of a vine to contrast himself with Israel. The Old Testament frequently used a vine as a symbol for God's covenant people. However, according to the prophets, Israel's failure to produce fruit 
had resulted in divine judgment. In contrast, Jesus declared, I am the true vine and my followers will abide in me and will produce much fruit. This week, we've arrived at verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. Stop and think about these words for a moment. We were chosen by Jesus to be his fruit bearers. You were chosen by God to be fruitful. Jesus is making two huge statements here. First, we were personally selected by the creator of the universe. And second, in Christ, fruitfulness is our natural disposition. John 15 is a stunningly powerful metaphor. It is part of an extended discourse between Jesus and his closest friends in the hours before he was captured, tortured and crucified. The disciples had just celebrated Passover, sharing their last meal with Jesus together and had left the upper room to walk across Jerusalem together to the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus would be betrayed and arrested. On that journey through the streets, they would have passed the entrance to the temple, the main gate of which was covered with a golden vine. First century historian Josephus described what the temple entrance looked like. The gate opening into the building was completely overlaid with gold, as was the whole wall around it. It had, moreover, above it, golden vines from which descended grape clusters as tall as a man. The golden vine was a magnificent and beautiful sculpture, literally draped over the entrance to the Jerusalem temple. It reflected both the vital part of the economy that vineyards played in first century Palestine, and much more importantly, the prominent role of grapevines as a metaphor for God's chosen people. No doubt Jesus would have walked between the branches of the golden vine on many occasions. The symbolism of the temple vine was huge. The Old Testament prophets spoke of Israel being God's vineyard, a vineyard he established to bear the fruit of justice and righteousness as a testimony and blessing to the whole world. In Isaiah 5, Isaiah described Israel as the vineyard of the Lord of heaven's armies, his pleasant garden. But Israel was unfaithful. It was an unfruitful vine. So Isaiah continued, he expected a crop of justice, but instead he found oppression. He expected to find righteousness, but instead he heard cries of violence. Rather than fulfilling its call to bear fruit, Israel had become a fruitless wild vine. Rather than justice and righteousness, in Israel God found only violence and oppression. The nation had failed to be all God called it to be. The vine bore no fruit and so it was useless. It was fit only to be thrown away and burned. And Jesus made it very clear that this was what God intended. He condemned the Jewish leaders in no uncertain terms and he declared that the temple itself would be destroyed to be replaced by a new living fruit-bearing temple centered in himself. 
In one particularly poignant parable recorded by Luke, Jesus compared the religious leaders to wicked tenants of a vineyard who provided no return for the owner, treated his servant shamefully and ultimately killed his son. So the owner of the vineyard destroyed the tenants and gave their vineyard to someone else. Jesus claimed that God was taking the kingdom away from Israel. Throughout his gospel, John emphasized that Jesus carried God's authority. In fact, he clearly demonstrated that Jesus was God incarnate. As I mentioned at the beginning of this talk, in chapter 15, John reports the last of seven great I am statements through which Jesus declared that he wasn't just a teacher or prophet, but that he was God. In making the statement, I am the true vine in verse one, Jesus was declaring himself to be God. This would have been clearly understood by the Jewish leaders. That's why they were out to get him. Jesus quite deliberately and specifically paralleled himself with God, who had also called himself, I am who I am, is in encounter with Moses at the burning bush. In other words, God said, I am God, and since I'm God, my name is enough to demonstrate my authority. There is no higher authority you can appeal to. Quite remarkably, in using the same I am statements, Jesus was doing the same thing. When Jesus said, I am the true vine, he was declaring himself to be the personal fulfillment of the mission God had given his vine, the people of Israel. But this was not God giving up on his faithless and fruitless people, rather in an extreme demonstration of his grace, mercy and love for mankind, God sent his son to bear the fruit his people had failed to produce. Jesus is the great I am. God himself has provided the way for his people to be fruitful through Jesus. And this was not just limited to the people of Israel. He opened the way for the whole world to be blessed. By grace, he has chosen new branches to be grafted into him. That's people like us to join him on his mission. Through these branches, that's the church made up of Jewish and Gentile believers in Christ, through our fruitfulness, Jesus is accomplishing God's original mission to bless the whole earth. Jesus' words in John 15 are not empty platitudes. They are deeply felt parting words addressed to his dearly loved disciples then and just as strongly to us, his disciples today. They are a direct commission, an appointing by God to bear fruit, to extend his mission to the whole world. By grace, the creator of the universe, the great I am, has chosen us. And as a direct consequence of that, he has appointed us to bear long-lasting fruit. Our fruit bearing is a direct and natural outflow of the grace by which we were grafted into the vine. 18th century theologian Jonathan Edwards said, the tendency of grace in the heart to holy practice, what we today would call actions or good works, is very direct. True grace is not an inactive thing. There is nothing in the universe that is in its nature has a greater tendency to fruit. 
Godliness in the heart has as direct a relation to practice as a fountain has to a stream or as life has to breathing. Or as Paul succinctly put it, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. We were personally chosen by the creator of the universe and the outflow from that is our commission to bear long lasting fruit. So what does that mean for us? Well, it has so many implications, but I'd like to just touch on two things I believe are important for us to reflect on right now. Firstly, we were chosen by God. We're not just tolerated by him. Ephesians 1 verses 4 to 5 says, He chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus. Jesus chose you and he knows you. Speaking of his followers, he said, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one can snatch them away from me, for my Father has given them to me and he is more powerful than anyone else. It is so easy to be tempted to define our position in Christ through the mistakes we've made, the times we've failed God or our families or our friends. It's so easy to believe that there's not enough fruit in our lives that we fear we might not really have been chosen by God. I mean, maybe we slipped into God's kingdom without him realizing we were there. But if you approach John 15 with this kind of attitude, the words might really make you worry, especially the parts about the branches of the vine being cut off and thrown away. So rather than focusing on the joy and the fruit that comes from our abiding in Christ, you're too busy trying to cling on to the vine for dear life, desperately hoping that you won't get found out and cut off. We see God as an irritated gardener wandering around the vine with a pair of vicious shears hunting out any branches he can find with an excuse to cut off. But we aren't the dead wood that is thrown away. Those branches have no life in them. According to commentators, the dead wood Jesus was addressing was the legalistic religious leaders and specifically Judas Iscariot, the disciple who had just left him and the other disciples to betray him later that very evening. God is no angry, shear-wielding gardener. It's just the opposite. As we've heard from Sue, Britt and Ian over the past few weeks, John 15 does challenge us to abide in Jesus and to let him prune us so we can be more fruitful. But this challenge is for us as chosen sons and daughters. Underpinning it are words of comfort and strength for the disciples that Jesus deeply loves. These are words that, as he himself says in verse 11, lead us into fullness of joy. He calls us his friends, chosen by him and appointed to bear long-lasting fruit in him so that others may experience his love too. You aren't just tolerated by God, you were chosen by him to eternal life in his kingdom before the beginning of time. You are special to him. No one can snatch you away from him, not even you. You've been grafted into the vine. Like the French winemaker's graft, it's a strong joining. Only ours is stronger and permanent as it was established by God himself. 
It's a graft union that enables the full nourishment of the vine to be enjoyed by the branches, such that together we bear rich, lasting fruit. Please let these words soak into you until they transform your heart and what you believe about yourself. Don't let the enemy or your own thinking try to exclude you. You are included in Christ because of what he did, not because of your efforts or circumstances, good or bad. You were chosen and appointed to bear fruit. That is who you are now. In Christ, fruit bearing is your natural disposition. Secondly, your circumstances don't determine your fruitfulness. Things can seem pretty dark now in our world. It's hard to find optimists proclaiming a bright future in any field of human endeavor. In our culture, we're more polarized, angry with each other, and sadder and lonely than we've ever been. Even the billionaires are in a race to get off the planet to start new lives on Mars. But the circumstances of life, whether that's the state of our nation or our personal circumstances, do not determine the success of God's mission nor our fruitfulness. In fact, God chose you for such a time as this. Please resist drawing conclusions about how the kingdom of God is doing based on how you think our nation or other nations for that matter are doing or what so-called apocalyptic doomsayers on the internet are saying. Jesus is on the throne and his kingdom is extending and advancing just as he said it would. Jesus said that the kingdoms of this world will rise and fall. They will come and go and we will face persecution and tribulation. But the kingdom of God is completely secure in Jesus's hands because his plan isn't dependent on us. Rather, as theologian R.C. Sproul said, it is grounded by him in his own counsel in eternity before the foundation of the world was laid. God has no alternative plan because his counsel is rooted in his infallibility, his omniscience and his perfect righteousness. Nothing could ever come up in nature's contingencies that would incline God to change his eternal purpose. He knows the end from the beginning. In fact, our sovereign God uses the circumstances of life, both good and bad, for his own purposes. The French winemakers I studied under were adamant that the best wines came from the fruit of rootstock that had thrived through hardship. Vines that had to press deeply into the soil to get nourishment. The tougher the conditions, the deeper they dug and the stronger they became. Our circumstances are not good indicators of the status of the mission, nor our fruitfulness. Throughout history, God has often moved most powerfully in the most desperate of times, not least during the very circumstances surrounding the passage we are considering today. Theologian Nigel Wright said, We find in the New Testament that the saving purposes of God are happening outside and in spite of the power structures of the state. God expands his purpose through the faith community which responds to his word. 
Jesus shared the words of John 15 with his disciples, knowing full well that just a few hours later he would be betrayed, arrested, tortured and killed. But he knew that this was necessary for his ultimate victory on the cross and for the work of the kingdom of God to begin its extension across the world. Challenging circumstances don't dictate our chosenness nor our fruitfulness. Indeed, suffering and rejection are essential marks of our faith. Despite being hunted down, shipwrecked, beaten up and imprisoned, Paul was undeterred in his mission, claiming that through our suffering we share in the death of Christ so that the life of Christ might be revealed in us. No matter how much turmoil we may think our world is facing or how difficult our circumstances might be, what we are facing is not the end of the story. Even persecution, sickness and death aren't the end of the story. We are in the middle of the story and it's a story with an amazing ending that we get to be a part of. So please don't get distracted from the mission or let the enemy trick you into believing that our fruitfulness in somehow being compromised by our circumstances or by secular forces in our world. God's plan is on track and he chose us to be a part of it. We've been chosen by God and appointed by him to be fruitful for such a time as this. Have a fruitful week this week.